I'm Will Roth. I'm Devin Scott. We already talked about the breakneck Jason Bourne spy movies. Now we're talking about the not breakneck adaptations of John le Carre's classic spy novel, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. We were joined by Tim Brayton, film critic at Alternate Ending, to talk through the very different adaptation philosophies that can be seen in the 70s miniseries with Alec Guinness and the 2011 feature film with Gary Oldman. Text, subtext, visuals, performances, opacity, a little bit of whining about the Oscars. We got it all. Welcome to Film Formally. We're talking about adaptation on this episode. We're talking about adapting spy novels. We're talking, most specifically, about adapting John le Carre's 1974 novel, Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy, into moving pictures. First, a 1979 BBC miniseries starring Alec Guinness and directed by John Irving. And then a 2011 theatrical feature film starring Gary Oldman and directed by Thomas Alfredson. Both these adaptations take very different approaches in the process of transferring a literary story to film and raise a lot of interesting points about the potentials and pitfalls of that process. So it's, it's quite a large subject, and all three works are dense as hell, so we're very happy to have Tim Brayton talking about it with us. Tim is a film critic whose work can be primarily found over at Alternate Ending. That's alternateending.com. He's also a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Tim, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to, to chat with you guys. I... I will start out just by by quickly sort of reintroducing myself and and all of the things you said are true. I, I am I am a critic there at Alternate Ending and I I study actually uh, animated films at UW. So not a hundred percent in my like scholarly wheelhouse, but I'm also a uh, John le Carré fanboy going back many many years. So so I feel like I I have what I need to 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 be able to talk about this subject, even though I'm not necessarily someone who knows a whole lot about like adaptation theory per se. But enough, enough to know that there is a thing called adaptation theory, I guess. We pride ourselves on, on bringing in amateurs as well as experts. We're a big tent over here. Before we properly dive into the subject uh, of adaptation and the comparison between all these different versions, I think we should set the stage uh, for each version of Tinker Taylor. Uh, it started life as a novel uh, by the widely beloved John le Carré. So John le Carré is actually born um, David Cornwell, who came up through private schools in England and had sort of a, a miserable childhood that he actually documented in one of his his novels, a sort of very thinly failed memoir called um, A Perfect Spy. And during World War II, he got kind of sucked into the the sphere of British intelligence, stayed there, found it was a really good fit. And in the late 1950s, early 1960s, started to apply his literary aspirations, which he'd had since he was a young man, towards turning uh, turning his experiences as a spy into this kind of very literary fiction. You know, it's the same time that like the James Bond novels and the James Bond movies are coming out. And he very much, very specifically wanted to present a counter narrative to that, like a de-romanticized spying is this kind of ugly, boring, tedious grind full of miserable people who hate their lives. So that's kind of his project, starting with his first books. His third book from, I think, 1963, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, which was also turned into a, a very celebrated movie, uh, 
makes him a huge star in in the English speaking literary world. And that's kind of it. Like from there forward, he just keeps writing books. They're all all really well regarded. Uh, at a certain point, shortly after after this after his first big book is published, he's outed by a mole in British intelligence, a man named Kim Philby, who is a Russian counter spy, basically. So from that point on, he is just a novelist, like still works under the pen name John Le Carre until until he died in 2020, I think, if I recall correctly. Yeah, just three months ago. Um, yeah, just recently. Yeah, that's right. So he's working under a pen name, but he's he's no longer a spy. Continues to sort of know people in the spy world, continues to grapple with like this question of, well, what is spying really like? And then in the mid-70s, he finally has enough distance from the Kim Philby affair to write his version of that story. And that's what Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is. It's about, okay, we know someone very highly placed in British intelligence is a Russian mole, is is giving information about like every operation, basically, uh, to to Carla, the name of this sort of fictitious head of, of Russian intelligence. And it's Le Carre using fiction to sort of work through his feelings about like what was it like to have been betrayed by Kim Philby? Like how, even though he had no positive feelings really about the British intelligence agency, he still had enough positive feelings about it that it felt like a, a tor- horrible act of betrayal. And so that's kind of what Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is, built around the character of George Smiley, who shows up as the protagonist in Lecrae's very, very first book, uh, Call for the Dead, and then shows up as a supporting character in a lot of his subsequent novels, all of which take place with the same fictitious but based on MI6 uh, intelligence agency called The Circus. And so Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is basically the story of how uh, George Smiley is pulled out of retirement to interrogate a bunch of other retirees or people very near to retirement to see if he can figure out what the hell is going on, who the mole is. And basically that's the book. It's just like long conversations about, do you remember when this happened? And by sort of getting all of these different perspectives on what happened, Smiley's eventually able to kind of carve his way towards figuring out a plot to trap them all. That's a wonderful introduction to John oh, Le Carre. Um, I was going to mention the Kim Philby thing, but you did in a much more fulsome way. Well, thank you. <laughs> but I think it might be worth going into, because I think this will have an impact on how people receive our thoughts on these three versions of the book. How we all kind of first came into contact with the book, because um, I can answer for both myself and Will, I believe, because we, we ended up seeing Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, uh, the Alfredson 2011 film, on, I think, opening day in the cinema, purely on the strength of the trailer. <laughs> Um, because it, for anyone who doesn't remember that trailer, it has the Wolfman soundtrack to it, and it's just wonderful. And it just, I think it changed our lives uh, in its own small way. That, that and Tree of Life were the two big viewings in 2011 that stuck with mm. me. And I think it finally convinced me that telephoto lenses, those lenses longer than 35 millimeters on a Super 35 sensor, were worthwhile. It, it introduced me to the idea of texture as a tool that you can use in one's toolkit. Is that about your experience too, Will? Yeah, pretty much. It also um, critically was a major film, I think, for me in uh, learning to enjoy films that I did not understand when I first watched them. Oh, nice. Uh, because, uh, uh, and, and I think this will be a major reference point for me in talking about all three of these versions. I mean, the book the book I could follow along with well enough, probably partly because I was already familiar enough with the film and because it's a little easier to follow as a book for reasons we'll get into. But even watching the miniseries for the first time uh, just this past week, I, I have to admit it was a struggle for several reasons for me to just wrap my head around the plotting. And uh, 
I accept that in uh, in the art that I uh, that I consume uh, these days. And I think the original Tinker Tailor film was a big part of that process. I actually also had the experience of seeing a movie and then kind of going back to the source material. Although for me, it was a bit er- earlier than that. Uh, it was the 1999 adaptation of The Tailor of Panama, which was the first contact mm. I had with anything he'd ever written, which I saw largely on the grounds that like, hey, Pierce Brosnan plays anti-Bond. And like, that sounds like a fun thing. <laughs> uh, the movie, I think, has some pretty straightforward problems. Like it's it's a fine film. It's not great. It's not anything particularly exciting or special, but had enough there that I was like, okay, this something's going on in the story. I like this. And enough of the reviews I read sort of negatively compared it to the book that I was like, you know what? I'm just going to read the book. I'm going to see if it's actually better. And it is actually better. <laughs> and I liked it enough that I decided, you know what? I'm just going to go through this guy's books. I took a few years before I actually started that process just because this was immediately before I went into college and my ability to read for fun was sort of severely curtailed. But I uh, went through his stuff chronologically, basically. So I started at Call for Murder and just more or less in order went forward from there and uh, got to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It benefits from, I believe, being his very next novel after his one attempt to do a romantic drama, which is called The Naive and Sentimental Lover, which I find almost unreadable and took me literally six months to get through a 300-page <laughs> book because it was just so horrible. So so getting back to Spies was a real nice treat after that. <laughs> At some point sought out the the BBC adaptation and then had seen had read the book and seen the adaptate that miniseries before I ever saw the movie, which I saw pretty much as soon as it opened. Yeah, so the novel Tinker Taylor, <laughs> the novel Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy <laughs> is going to happen a lot. Was uh, enough of a uh, was enough of a success um, both in sales and uh, critically that it ended up occasioning a miniseries produced by the uh, BBC uh, in 1979. There's, uh, I think, not too much that uh, needs to be specifically contextualized to understand the idea of the miniseries. There's interesting anecdotes about its making and Guinness's performance and its direction, etc. But I think what's most important to know about the context of the miniseries is just how confusing people found it as a piece of television, that there were articles written, debates in newspapers about whether it made sense, how whether it was dull or co- too dull or confusing to function well as a piece of television drama. And uh, that was, I think, a m- major and maybe even the most important part of the miniseries' legacy uh, for many, many years. Nonetheless, the series did do well enough that there was, uh, they did produce a sequel series based on the book uh, Smiley's People. Kind of obvious piece of context, just while in Britain, it was easier to do six episode little mini series, or in this case, it was a seven episode mini series, then recut to be six for American TV. Uh, so, you know, we now have this idea of like limited series, things like True Detective, things like Fargo, like stories that can be sort of a, a serial narrative across one short season. Uh, Britain had that decades ago so like that would have just felt normal uh but the other thing that i think is really worth just touching on this was a time in british television production where for the purposes of keeping budgets down everything shot on location was filmed on 16 millimeter everything shot in the studios was generally shot on videotape and the producing team for this miniseries felt like they had something really really special and they really wanted it to stand out and be prestigious so they fought for and won 
the budget to shoot the entire thing on 16 millimeter. And uh, that actually surprised me because I, on my rewatch, it's it's like night and day from any other BBC production of the era in terms of the interiors. Um, it can't be understated how much of a difference 16 mil makes over analog video. Absolutely, it it makes it look so much just more like a real thing and not like a yeah. soap opera. <laughs> I know that's a, no soap opera is the easiest thing to complain about <laughs> shot on video, but I mean, as much as I'm a fan of like 70s era Doctor Who, like it looks so cheap. I think there is just something to say about when you get the degree of detail and texture and just latitude that you do out of 16 millimeter film stock as opposed to the BBC's 70s video cameras. There is just something to say about how it makes uh, what you're watching more credible. I think whatever its merits or, uh, or otherwise, I think we can probably agree that the BBC miniseries is not per se a visual tour de force of uh television making that's something i know that devon will have a lot to say about (laughs) yeah yeah i mean like i i admire it yeah i admire it visually within the context of british 70s tv but that is not a context that you're going to see just amazing feats of cinematography coming out of regardless so the more uh, british tv i see from the 70s and 80s and early 90s the more i i cannot believe the ian richardson house of cards got made because that that is this weird uh, oasis <laughs> of just absolutely dynamite visual storytelling uh, in a kind of sea of, I guess, an oasis in a sea makes no sense, in a desert of kind of very rote coverage. And mm-hmm. not to spoil myself for my thoughts later, but uh, I was a little surprised at my kind of blasé reaction to my rewatch of Tinker Taylor because I was like, oh, this this feels more like you know, uh, work-a-day John Irving uh, direction than it does some sort of, like, expressive adaptation of the source material. But we can get into that. Quickly, because I think we're going to be bouncing between um, all three works a fair amount as we talk about it. So I'd love to... Introduce the Swedish movie. Yeah, talk about the Swedish Tinker Taylor. No, it's (laughs) a director... There was a director who was Swedish and had, up to that point, only made Swedish films, Thomas Alfredson, It was just a feature film that had the seemingly insurmountable task of compressing the plot of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is very densely communicated already in the uh, six or seven part series, compressing that plot down into a two hour theatrical feature film that can be consumed in a single sitting. The cast is, I think there is will be no debate whatsoever here. Absolutely dynamite in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the feature film. Uh, Team uh, Mark Gary Oldman. Strong. Yeah, Gary Oldman <laughs> plays uh, Smiley. It's got Benedict Cumberbatch, like Kathy Burke. It's just got a lot of terrific performers, extremely well-matched. Who could forget to Toby parts. Jones? Who could forget Toby Jones? I do I do really love Toby Jones in Tinker Tailor. I feel like like the entire career arc of Toby Jones is you didn't deserve to be forgotten for X and <laughs> there's just so many examples of X in that man's career. Yeah, and I just I always feel bad that he ended up in both the other Hitchcock biopic and the other Truman Capote movie. <laughs> and like that is bad fucking luck. Like your agent needs to be fired. <laughs> I, I feel similarly about Mark Strong in that I love him in this role. In fact, he might be the highlight of the whole cast for me, and that's saying a lot. Every time I see him in a film since then, I'm frustrated that he, no, one, no one can unearth his doe-eyed humanity uh, like they can in this film. It's amazing. It definitely felt in 2011, because he'd been kicking around for a while as like a that guy, 
and it yeah. felt like Tinker Taylor had unlocked him and it's like, oh my God, we're here for like this great new era in Mark's strong performances and it just did not happen. And it really does feel like, damn, that guy just one time, it just came together so perfectly. And he, well, he also gives like the best one scene performance in uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, we are failing. I thought you were going to say 1917. Oh, as well. He's great in that too, right? <laughs> Introducing him with the feet and all that. Yeah. Anyway, we've contextualized it by talking about the, all the other movies <laughs> that the cast is in. The non-formal parts. This is filmed formally. <laughs> But it's it's but the the 2011 film um, does somehow while obviously uh, leaving out certain thematic aspects and uh, a, a fair number of plot details, it's not as complex as either the series or the novel naturally. But it does manage to compress uh, the plot down uh, into a two-hour time span. Um, I think I'm I will probably be agreed with here. Uh, without feeling as though it is uh, sacrificing its labyrinthine ticks. It's also full of telephoto imagery, as Devin alluded to earlier. It's kind of one of the last great hurrahs, I think, of 70s on-film pastiche emulation in a like mainstream period drama. Now everyone does it digitally, which, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is fine, but it's a different animal, I think. I, I think it is hard to overstate how important to me, at least to my experience of this movie, the costume design is in terms of like getting at that, like this is the seventies, mm-hmm. like in a very, not like our cultural idea of the seventies, like bell bottoms and ugly hair and shit. It's more just like, it's so Brown. It's so Brown <laughs> and burnt orange in such a, like in a powerful way. Like it, it actually, it's, it's, it, it reminds me of Zodiac in a way in that it's using, mm-hmm. it's kind of very workaday version of the seventies to get at something about the culture that can't really be stated in dialogue. Well, if, to get into the costumes a bit more, um, what I love is the way that virtually everyone, all this, the principles in the film dress like we would think someone would dress stereotypically maybe from the early 60s or late 50s. Mm. And then in the background, you have sprinkled in like, um, like you know, hippies. Um, you have uh, occasionally like someone, there's this woman who walks by at some point in this very like trendy early 70s uh, kind of jacket that it feels right. like someone walked in off the street. So you have this commentary on the way that all these characters are, are all stuck in the past, you know, stuck in the, as John Le Carre would say, um, the wartime nostalgia. Mm-hmm. My partner, I, I watched it yet again last night and my partner watched it for the first time and it took her some time before it occurred to her uh, that the film was not set in the 40s. Uh, <laughs> oh, interesting. Not because it's, it's costumed, especially like a uh, 40s film. Um, but because there's that uh, overwhelming sense of nostalgia and because these people all basically spend their all their time in the architecture of a, uh, of a wartime mm-hmm. service. I think the starting point for Tinker Taylor uh, should be talking about how the plot is presented. Mm-hmm. There are some ways that the, both the miniseries and the film adapts that plot in ways that might seem uh, fairly obvious and logical. And there are other ways uh, in which they are actually somewhat radical in the way they approach uh, adapting uh, that story to film. So, for example, I think a great place to start is on the subject of opacity, a plot that is not interested in rendering uh, the implications and connections uh, in all of its twists and uh, machinations 
immediately obvious or transparent to the audience. So as I said, the miniseries uh, was pretty widely debated upon its release for being super duper confusing. And so is the movie. It's worth noting the the movie had whole think pieces written on it about how they're, you know, uh, I couldn't figure this thing out. Yeah. I guess we should just start by talking about the merits of making an adaptation of a novel, which in my opinion is more easily comprehensible on first read, partly because it's a book. It doesn't fly by faster than you can follow it. Mm -hmm. And partly because it can afford itself more detail and explanation uh, at a moment's notice, if nothing else, through the narrator's uh, point of view. This is a good point for us to talk about the idea of adapting a plot that is in some ways unadaptable, at least for the purposes of ongoing comprehension. One of the reasons, I think you're exactly correct, the book is is by far the easiest way to absorb this story, and mm. it is because it's a book, and, and for the reasons you pointed out. Uh, I also think it's worth touching on, uh, Le Carre has a very specific writing, I don't want to call it a tick, because I think he's doing it on purpose, I think it is like his his project, but like in so many of his books, maybe even all of his books, he deals with internal memory in a very specific way. Like his books are full of people having some event in the present trigger their recollection of something that happened in the past. And, and certainly Tinker Taylor is no exception to this. And so we get a lot of very necessary narrative context sort of presented as these little character beats rather than as necessarily as story beats or as expository beats uh, because they are being presented through this kind of, not stream of consciousness narration, but like you, you get the sense in his best books, I think that like the characters themselves don't know where their thoughts are headed. They just kind of end up there. And I think that's incredibly difficult to do in, in a visual medium and whether it's impossible, I won't say, I will say neither of these adaptations I think are trying to do that. Like they're both trying to get at that doing different things. But I do think that to me, at least is one of the reasons the book is just so much more graspable as an object. I mean, this is a different medium. This is an uncontroversial thing to say, but there are certain things that are just very possible to do in a literary context that you have to find alternate ways around when you make a film. Part of what I love about the, and this was probably my central thesis about the 2011 Alfredson film, is that I feel like it, of any Lacaria adaptation, does the most holistic, fully thought through, fully formed job of finding cinematic routes to expressing the things that the carry expresses using literal devices that are tough to translate directly to cinema to take the cliche you don't hear inside the character's heads what you do is you know what he does instead is he designs a specific telephoto shot or blocks a scene a certain way or even uses like down to the costumes right he he expresses stuff that is text in the book and also in the miniseries through aesthetics and i feel like that drives a lot of people to see the 2011 film and films like it that choose to go this way as almost like surface level what i'm presupposing here is maybe it's deep (laughs) (laughs) the need for this to be an efficient script is so intense like condensing all that narrative material down into two and a quarter hours it has got to go other places to get psychological flavoring, to get like a sense of place, just to get all of the things that make the story worth engaging with. Because like the script can only really get to the meat and potatoes of who is he talking to, what is he learning. Uh, and I think you're exactly correct. It is being done very much through this extremely strange use of form. And I don't think we give this film nearly enough credit for how weird looking it is. Like it's not like weird looking in like a 
sort of Baz yeah. Luhrmann sense, like it's not florid and garish. You 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 keep mentioning the telephoto lenses, and you you exactly you should. That's exactly right. It's just really really strange how this film shoots groups of people. Yeah, I mean, it combines all these weird disparate formal elements. Like, this film has probably the longest lens ever used in a piece of narrative cinema, which is the runway shot, which I believe was 2,500 mm. millimeters. But that, and I remember that all the time because I ripped that shot out constantly. That sits side by side with these somewhat wide angle lateral dolly shots that kind of revolve around characters. They pick a fulcrum in the scene and then kind of in a slightly mm-hmm. unmotivated way move around them. You got uh, characters constantly flattened out against their background. I mean, I, I teach cinematography and I always tell my students, pull your subjects away from your background. You want depth in the scene. In this film, there's the um, the like the soundproof texture in, in Control's office where, uh, or at least the, you know, the, the head circus meeting room that just frustrates your sense of what's foreground and what's background. So yeah, like you're saying, the, the way people are photographed here, I mean, has have Gary Oldman or Colin Firth ever looked like this in a movie? I don't think so. <laughs> it feels like 70s Robert Altman with like Sven Nykvist's work and a whole bunch of other weird influences that concoct into this wonderful I don't know, this it feels so unified despite the fact that it really is jagged. Anyways, that's my rant. <laughs> yeah, I generally feel that the term uh prowling camera is uh is overused and if if I was going to approve of it being used for a film, this would be a, a rare instance <laughs> where I might. It's just uh the camera philosophy in pretty much every way is geared towards this idea of uh, of observation of surveillance like it is one of the best things I learned in my very first year of university back uh, when I wasn't a film student but I happened to take a film class was when the professor was talking about all the functions of zooms of zoom ins and zoom outs in shots and the one that he stressed the most that he thought was the most interesting and that I, I continue to agree <laughs> was uh, that it's an epistemological statement, right? Uh, that a zoom in, especially on someone or on something, tends to signify the realization of something or the understanding of something or the uh, active observation of something uh, in hopes of procuring knowledge. And so that is absolutely tinker tailored to a T where it always feels like it's leaning around a corner to just get a little bit more information or it's it mm. zooms in or out on on moments uh where it's critical that you not only understand the text that's going on but the subtext and so it acts as a kind of subconscious prompt for the audience to really try to think hard about what they're seeing and what's going on within the story because it's critically important that they understand what's happening under the surface. It's being used in a very sort of straightforward way to, to mark out moments, to say like this moment with a zoom should make you think of these other moments with a zoom, uh, which I think is, is an underappreciated thing that form can do. It can just be like, okay, we're going to pluck out moment A, B, C, D, and say these four moments all need to be thought of in context with each other. But I, I do think uh, I, I want to agree with what you you said your, your professor kind of pushed you towards is like, why why a Zoom? What does a Zoom do? When I, I never taught film production, what I would teach like sort of film analysis. And one of the things that I, I always kind of nudged my students towards was Zooms call attention to the subject of the Zoom, whereas like a tracking shot sort of calls attention to the space you're moving through. And so that's that's like why a zoom is potentially more psychologically motivated, I think, than a tracking shot can be, because the zoom is really telling us like 
the character's brain is the subject of the shot, whether you can see it, whether you know what's going on in it or not. What I find most interesting about a zoom is what it doesn't change, because a dolly shot changes your relationship with the space, while a zoom keeps you planted, right? Um, that's why you mm-hmm. can recreate a zoom in post, but not a dolly shot. To me, a zoom usually implies some sort of gaze, right? Where uh, and it can be both the character's gaze if you're in a point of view shot, or it can just be the director pointing your gaze as an audience in a slightly more overt way. Right. Over 50% of the shots in this film have zooms. <laughs> and it, it, it's one of the few films I've ever seen where the zooms kind of become this white noise, where it's just, I notice it when I'm not zooming in this movie. This paranoia of the characters always feeling like they're being watched and always watching each other. It's the... Mm-hmm. You know, it feels like a good expression of the secret world inside the secret world, as uh, LeCarrie would put it. Yeah, I think there's something to be said, too, about, and maybe I'm alone in feeling this, haha, but the loneliness of watching the 2011 Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Um, I remember watching it in theaters, even feeling like an isolating experience. And I think that's uh, partly to do with the fact that um, normally, an experience in a theater is uh, very communal um, because you're generally uh, receiving the same data and understanding it in the same way at the same time. But when you watch something that is, number one, uh, so challenging to parse at any given moment, and number two, uh, so obsessed with, uh, with the idea of distrust and isolation and loneliness, I think it ends up instilling a kind of, uh, as you mentioned, Devin, a paranoia uh, in the viewer themselves, right? It makes you, it makes you like, it makes you like that kid Roach, you know, it makes you, you know, you're the good watcher. And at first you're excited to watch. And as things go along, uh, you might, you might become decreasing, increasingly disenchanted. (laughs) Not to go on a completely unnecessary aside, but Please do. I believe by the end of this calendar year, there will be three of his books that have been adapted twice. Oh, This one, of course, got there first, but then we've had uh, two versions of Little Drummer Girl, mm. and supposedly there's going to be a miniseries version of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold by the end of this year, which oh. I don't I don't know how I feel about that, because that's not like a long or complicated book, but mm-hmm. again, that's, that's an aside, so I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. But Well, never underestimate the ability of television directors and producers to pad things out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They'll probably make it. They'll probably make the series like a reveal that it's not, in fact, a self-contained miniseries. But they're opening up a uh, smiley verse <laughs> <of> television. <laughs> God, how are they going to do that when his age is a floating timeline? He's sixty <laughs> all the time. Just to to sort of since I reminded myself that the little drummer girl exists, there is a remarkably bad film from 1984 adapting, I think, the 1983 novel, uh, which has a lot of the same problems that the 2011 Tinker Taylor is trying to solve in that dense book, a lot of pages, a lot of incidents. There's no like narrative dross, but we still need to figure out a way to get it down to 130 minutes. How are we going to do that? And they both have similar scripts that are basically just really tightly focused on what is the material in the script that absolutely has to be there to get the plot across, like to get a, a comprehensible ish story put over. Um, the difference being that, Little Drummer Girl just has absolutely no sense of there being anything we can do for the audience other than having characters say words. Like, it's it's a very, very boring adaptation. Uh, extremely flat imagery. Like, it's it's the same kind of, like, person in focus in the foreground, person behind them out of focus in the midground, and, like, that's, like, three quarters of the shots in the film. There's no 
subtlety. There's no subtext. It's really just like sort of trudging through what it can trudge through of a plot and is it's awful. It's the worst. It's the worst adaptation of his books I've ever seen, honestly. And I think a film like that really does showcase how much Alfredson and his team are trying to sort of subtly move us through Tinker Taylor, through all of these kind of visual cues that aren't even necessarily being like flagged for us. Like we're not being told, pay attention to this. We're not being told, like notice what's going on in the style here. And it's just a much richer, more satisfying piece because of that, because it's able to get all of this like psychological subtext on screen, even if it can't put it in the, in the script itself. Yeah, no one has to say like, Oh, uh, we're all, uh, we're all anxious about the decline and fall of the British empire. You see it because of the color grading of the, the amount of atmosphere. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. At the end when the mole, uh, says that his decision was, uh, an aesthetic choice as much as a moral one, then, uh, you know, <laughs> the West has become so ugly. You can't help but go. Yeah, I get it, man. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. This place, this place sucks, dude. The, be- the best example is that runway shot where in the novel mm-hmm. and in the miniseries, it is, it's just another scene of people talking in a room uh, of, of little note <laughs> uh, as far as description goes. And they put so much dramatic emphasis and visual emphasis on it by basically saying like, what if there was a plane coming right at him? <laughs> Well, the, the plane enables George Smiley. To, he he, does, he never has to directly threaten the man he's threatening, Toby Esterhaus, or even tell you the implications. But the audience can put two and two together. There's a plane landing in the background. It's clearly, you know, destined for... For Vienna, where he's wanted. To, you know, some prison somewhere. And it's just this perfect use, in my opinion, of a focal length, which is my favorite thing in film, uh, to uh, construct a story beat. Did you know that they had to drive? They had to drive a big stake into the ground to get the camera stable enough to not be shaky. Wow! Yeah, it's oh, insane. Um, on the commentary track, uh, Alfredson has a great little bit where he's like, "This lens was, yes, it was uh, grotesque," uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, I if only if only I had the guts to afford a 2500 millimeter lens." But that's neither here nor there. That's just it's just a it's a crazy thing to even imagine like wrangling that object. Like, yeah, <laughs> how, have to have how its own heavy vehicle. would that lens have to be? Exactly. It probably, I mean, I've the longest lens I've ever used is 600 millimeter, and that thing looked like a bazooka. So uh, I can't <laughs> imagine. Or just like like chartering a plane to, to do six takes or however many they had to do for that scene. It's just insane. Mm. Um, it was not a high budget movie. But anyways, I think this is a good bridge to kind of start tackling the 79 series a bit more directly i feel like in the back of my mind it's almost like this control variable of like the literary adaptation but i think there's more going on there than that that i'm probably not giving credit for yeah i mean i i am definitely very happy to cast myself in the position of of miniseries defender i think it is a very formidable work of television granting that television especially 70s television is is trying to do other things than a lot of what we're talking about. And I, it does give itself the luxury of having a really expansive running time. It still has to cut. It still has to reduce to like try and fit things. But I, I think it is still shaping the material in ways that make it better. And and part of, part of why I say this is because there are other, there are other long form adaptations of, of the Carrie's work. There's, uh, Smiley's People from 82, there's um, A Perfect Spy from 88, uh, and then the recent Night Manager from uh, 2016. So we have other 
miniseries adaptations that we can compare it to. And I, I do think it's considerably better than any of them. And especially Smiley's People, I think, is a really obvious place to compare it to because in a lot of ways, there's they're very similar production teams. Uh, the director changes, and that's one of the big changes. Still, Alec Guinness is George Smiley. And and I'll, I'll get there because I want to talk about the miniseries first a little bit, of course. But my first bid for actually the miniseries is doing interesting and good things. It's not terribly interestingly shot. And and certainly that would be, I think, a point that it's it's not possible to say, oh, this is just as good as the 2011 film. It is 16 millimeter film using BBC's like house film cameras, mostly shot in the BBC. Like when they I were love like that location detail. scouting, they were like, where is the most faceless, hideous bureaucracy in Great Britain? <laughs> yeah. We're standing in it, uh, which is now, so now great. Let's set up two 2K blondes and point them at the actors. And there we go. OK, sorry. That was me. Exactly. Some tweeting the, the gaffer. Um, go ahead. Hey, I mean, it, it, it's it's not a beautiful piece of, of, of television. Like it, it's very drab looking. I'm going to defend that in, in turn as well. But I do want to start by just saying, well, there's there is this this thing we could think about, which is like, what is, what is the formal unit of television? It's not the movie, it's the episode, right? So I think this is using episodes in a really interesting way. And I hadn't picked up on that until I saw the British version, which is just so much better than Mm -hmm. the American version. It's kind of ridiculous uh, in that every one of the seven episodes is kind of structured around one conversation. And it's not like every episode consists of one conversation, But there's per episode one moment where Smiley speaks to someone who has some piece of information he needs and we kind of drift back through that person's memories. And that's like the centerpiece of every episode, basically. My favorite thing about the the series is definitely how it parses out. Uh, Each episode is its own self-contained. It's either building up to Smiley talking to someone or he talks to someone in the first half and then deals with the implications. Um, And there's always some sort of major turning point right when it cuts to credits. And it's always very satisfying. It does feel like the way that each episode centers on one moment that is a turning point, it enables you to retain each moment that the director and writers of the show want you to retain in your memory so much better than just a six-hour movie arbitrarily divvied up would, and that I love. I I have no disagreement there, actually. I completely agree. The the structure is wonderful. What do you think, Will? (laughs) I want I want you to stop pussyfooting around your dislike for the visuals of the miniseries and just go at it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but before I do that, um, Tim, uh, do you want to talk more about the structure or? Um, I mean, I don't know if this counts as structure or not, but I think one of the other things I really love about the series is it has enough running time that it can let moments go by really slowly. Mm-hmm. And I I like that. I think it's using duration well. So the the story, and we've touched on this in in connection with the 2011, but I don't think we've really spelled it out, and it's worth really spelling it out. The story's not about, well, the story's about we need to find a spy. The book is not about, will they find a spy? The book is about a whole bunch of aging white Britons discovering that the world they have worked so hard to like build and solidify is dead. It's not even dying. It's gone. It's in the past. And they are like scrambling to find some degree of some kind of a position in the world as it's currently constituted, realizing they probably can't do that. It's it's a very like the empire is dead. Our way of life never made sense. But now we really have to cope with that. It's all about the loss of a way of life that frankly, good riddance to it 
but the people who live that way of life don't necessarily take comfort in that. Like that's what the book is. And I think both adaptations do take that as kind of like a North star in a way, like they, they get at that in their different ways. And the, the movie we've touched on gets there through, through these amazingly just kind of rusted out visuals and all of these, these spaces that just feel kind of very tired and brown. And we, we keep using that word brown because I think it, it matters. I think one of the ways the miniseries gets there, and I do think the miniseries also gets there by being very, very brown. And again, by saying, like, what's the what's the ugliest location we could shoot this in? Yeah. It's the offices of the BBC. Yeah, some I of the think, restaurants they find just blew me away with how, oh, like, man. why would anyone ever ingest food here? Anyway. <laughs> right? But, like, I think a big way it gets there is just by having all of these conversations kind of, like wander their way out of the actor's mouths. Like it feels like a lot of these monologues are not hurried. They don't have any real urgency at the end of them. It doesn't really register. Like what did we just learn from this conversation? It's more like people just kind of venting their memories because they have nothing else to do. And and we're, we're trapped with that for so, so long. I think that gains its own kind of salience. Like just this, like, mm we're just why am i listening to you talking like you're not telling me anything but that it kind of has this it's frustrating in a way that i think is productive towards those themes it's productive towards that idea that the show's trying to to dig into so i I, what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna preface my complaints about the visuals by saying that i'm gonna be a bit what's the word unforgiving in my assessment this does not represent my whole thoughts on the matter i'm definitely not i mean as a cinematographer i think people have an idea of cinematographers it's like i only you know only only care about like you know how things are aesthetically and i tend to really love like stuff like thomas vinterberg's early work and that sort of thing you know like dogma 95 you know i think there's a lot of merit in shooting things in a really unassuming way for television probably what i like about the bbc's visuals john irving's visuals in the 79 series is that they feel really authentic to where britain was in the late 70s but that said i couldn't help but think that the camera direction and coverage mentalities and the lighting mentalities in tinker taylor soldier spy really feel like a cookie cutter approach aside from the 16 mil thing which i think is a huge asset where the camera is put, the emphasis on close-ups, which is not inherently a bad thing. I mean, I like Joan of Arc as much as you two do. There's this um, kind of mid- mid-length focal length that they use for everything. Lighting tends to be motivated by window with a, you know, with some sort of hard three-point fixture inside for fill lighting. And it feels like, and I think this is probably largely driving it, what it's doing is it's simply setting the stage for the performances and drama to play out it feels like it's more in the tradition of filmed plays and you know uh teleplays than it is in any in in the sort of cinematic expressiveness that i value this really comes to the fore when i you can do a direct comparison between scenes where for example um smiley's first briefing with uh, lacan there there's this introductory shot where they're just standing in front of this fireplace and they're just lit by these two front lights it feels it actually gave me flashbacks to my early videography work when it would be like put up two led panels but that's not here nor there and then i would compare that to the you know the the, the briefing with lycan in the beginning of the alfredson version where you know you have these wonderfully expressive like lights from above these string lights and perfectly obscuring oldman's eyes it feels like that film is firing on all cylinders formally in a way that the TV series only rarely does in terms of visuals, right? And I think, Tim, you rightfully said that the series isn't really interested in that. But I I struggle between fully agreeing with you, actually, and also 
feeling at all times like, oh, but if only, if only it was also sure. interested in that. So that's where I struggle with the BBC series where I feel like I'm, I really try and figure out, you know, like if I immediately see something and go, okay, this isn't working for me visually, but enough people have said that, you know, there is merit to this. I usually try and find my way in, right? And I guess this, this whole podcast is kind of a mechanism for me trying to find my way in. But um, this is what happened with me and like Robert Altman, where first time I saw of his was MASH, and I was like, what is this garbage? Um, <laughs> this is, um, and you know, and I think actually Tinker Taylor, this film uh, helped me get into stuff like McCabe and Mrs. Miller because I thought, okay, there's intentionality be- behind the fact that everything looks like foggy shit. <laughs> and, but yeah, so th- that's kind of where I'm coming from on this. This kind of, ongoing frustration of like, I know this isn't interested in in the same kind of expressive tools that I adore about cinema and what often defines the cinema I love, but why is that okay? Or am I missing something under the surface here that is actually doing work? And I know, Will, you might have some opinions on this too. When I mentioned this to you in, in our briefing before this, you give me the side <laughs> eye. So um, I'd love to hear from both of you about your thoughts on my, uh, on my uh, angry rant I just gave. Yeah, you were you're you're in you're off hinge, you're unhinged right now. I've I'm unhinged. Frothing like this. <laughs> Nobody talks about this. Um, <laughs> to me, the primary question to come back at that with, uh, and and the question I think to some extent uh, you're wrestling with is what are the merits of opacity in style? You're you're mentioning a lot your enjoyment of expressiveness, right? Of of the expressive visual decisions of the 2011 Tinker Tailor film. Uh, and I think that goes for a lot of things about the Tinker Tailor film. The the cutting is very ornate in the Tinker Tailor <laughs> film. Yeah. Uh, the 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 music is uh, quite a lot more emotionally nuanced in the Tinker Tailor film. The the very jazzy uh, score. Um, Alberto Iglesias, yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I would I would even say that uh, it's defined generally by more overt emotional moments uh, for the characters both because See, this like is my Peter asterisk. Uh, my asterisk like, is, am, am I just easy to fool with style? Can yeah. you just throw glitter in my eyes and go, Devin, you're impressed. <laughs> right, your favorite movie is Napoleon, right? And, but like, yeah. And I, I think there's there's nothing wrong whatsoever with having style bedazzle you. I think that's one no. of the pleasurable things. Yeah, we all love Speed Racer. But here's the thing is that uh, uh, contrary-wise, we have to ask ourselves about, because I think the BBC series, the, it's not just that the visuals aren't expressive. And it's not just that the visuals, I mean, for the most part, this is a generalization, but I think it it holds true. It's not just that they're functional even, it's that the visuals are actively opaque, emotionally opaque. They, uh, even sometimes the cutting patterns don't cut to the reactions that will be most uh, demonstrative of someone's emotional state. The lighting, likewise, uh, as Devin alluded to, tends to be very flat and unflattering on the characters' faces um, um, in not merely a functional way, but in an, an, a kind of way that alienates you from the inner workings of the people, of the form of the series itself, and uh, as a partial consequence of that, the narrative. Tim already mentioned that uh, one of the notable things about the series is that because of its length, it can move slowly. I think part of the result of that is that the series in particular uh, has so many moments where it's not clear how important they are, which, which piece of information that's being given is especially important uh, in a given conversation will sometimes not be apparent until like one or two or three episodes later. 
uh, when someone mentions it and you go like, did that happen? When was that? Did we trust <laughs> <Yeah>. that guy? <laughs> right? that, that kind of moment. And so to some extent, I think there is, and I, I recognize that this is, this is a, a, a lot of these formal things I'm talking about are a feature of the BBC visual style circa 1979. That's true. But I, what I'm suggesting here is that they've been purposed into a arguably effective framework for that kind of opacity, which works to some extent to the series' advantage, right? The majority of the final episode takes place after the mole is unveiled. And so proportionately, there's a lot more time in the miniseries spent after the mole is outed, and let's just spoil it and say Bill Hayden's the mole, there's significantly more proportion of the miniseries dedicated to that epilogue period than there is in the 2011 film or in the novel, um, especially the novel. Uh, the novel ends not very long after the discovery of uh, the true mole at all. Uh, it, it's like, it's, it's only a few pages, really. That's partly there in order to provide emphasis on these very non-plotty moments in order to the the point is that the opacity is the point right mm -hmm. and so even uh it's not until the final final scene of the miniseries when you get something close to an emotional outburst or an emotional thesis from smiley when uh in another in, in like maybe the single biggest departure from the novel of the miniseries he visits his wife we see Anne. Yeah. she finally uh, says to him uh life's quite a puzzle to you isn't it george and george almost breaks down in tears and then the series abruptly fades out. So that's that's kind of my idea, is that uh, we are meant to be mystified. We are meant to be distanced from this. We're meant to be struggling with these plot machinations. We're, we're meant to be trying to figure out why everyone is so willingly cruel and, and aware of their cruelty towards George Smiley and his issues with his wife. That's That's kind of my starting point for for justifying why in spite of the fact that it is unremarkable on paper and maybe even in effect in a lot of ways the aesthetic does have some unique effects for this particular project the the moment that that from that last episode that really it's not a moment it's like a, a scene that that really just hangs in my head is when smiley is in the room where they're holding bill and just talking to him and bill's kind of giving him his like the, sh the spiel about like you know Britain's firing all this stuff very explicitly like here are the themes of the, the piece but it's lit in this just horribly awkward unpleasant way it's like a very hot yellow light that they're using to light this room it's it's casting really weird ugly shadows and it's in a way almost like an anti-expressive use of style because it's like it's really it's there like this is not just BBC standard like they've gone to the effort of like rigging up this light but it's 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 kind of making things worse in a way it's not telling me anything about the characters it's not telling me anything about the space it's not realistically motivated it's just kind of this like slabby hot yellow ugliness in a way that that i feel actually does work for me because it's it's kind of like it just feels sticky it feels sweaty to me and it just it feels like everything is rotten and bad and and let's again that's kind of the thesis so like the fact that there's just such such drab style i think does tie into that um but what i wanted to sort of just to consider sort of what what the series is, where it comes from, because I, I would prefer myself to rather than say, here are the, the things that the series isn't interested in. 
which I mean, it's not like it's, it's fair to say, no, this is not interested in like really expressive noir style lighting. What are the limitations that have been placed on it? And what is it doing with those limitations? Mm-hmm. Which is to me, I think the more interesting way to, to sort of, and again, I, I'm, I'm motivated to find like the best possible reading of style in this, this mini series. Uh, but the things we need to keep in mind, this is a 1979 television production at which point in time in, in certainly the English speaking West, the idea of expressive cinematic style lighting just wasn't something that you did in TV. Like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure where in British television this changes in America. It's really not until twin peaks that we suddenly have access to. You can shoot a TV show like a movie. That's an okay thing for you to do. Uh, and it's it's really, I think, Twin Peaks and the X-Files, at least in America, that codify that as like an approach. It's interesting that you mentioned English speaking because I was about to, uh, my first thought was, oh, yeah, you know, all the early expressive television I can remember is from non-English speaking places. Like you have like Kieslowski's work, you have Bergman stuff. Exactly. I, I think we, we compare nobody to Kieslowski because everyone looks bad when you've done that. It's like, why wasn't your series as good as Decalogue? It's like, well, because nothing is as good as Decalogue. <laughs> But so, so that's one thing. It's just like, there are norms, like there are technological norms. This is how we work in TV. There's also, how is this series to be interacted with? Like the viewer is watching this on what, like probably a 17 or 19 inch at most television tube, right? Like it's, it's small. It needs to be very quickly read. This is why I think, you know, we, we associate so much old TV with like, my God, why are there so many close-ups? It's cause that's what you can parse. Right. Like when you're getting these images on a pretty small screen, like you can't deal with complicated three dimensional blocking, which is, I think, a bummer. And it's one of the things that I do think current television absolutely has all over classic television is it can go into more sort of elaborate blocking. But so given those are the limitations, like there's just no one going to be saying, well, why don't we try to light this more expressively? And, you know, we have to make it look good on a TV. We have to make it look good on TVs that have probably pretty crap color reproduction at that that's just not part of the toolkit yeah i think that's a really good point right i mean i was i watched this whole series on like a 4k flat screen because that's what you have now right and like i mean i watched it on a 65 inch tv so like i totally get that so that's not to like apologize for the show or like excuse what it's not doing or is doing just to say like there there are limitations and the show is going to be working within those but i do think having set those limitations it is it is taking it is, it's making a virtue of, well, these are the only things we can do, because I think really the series, certainly more so than the movie, I won't say more so than the book, although in a different way than the book, it's about bureaucracy. Like the bureaucracy itself becomes kind of like the force preserving the bureaucracy. And I think part of this feeling of like we're going into yet another room that's going to be overlit everybody's going to be staged in it the same way it is dehumanizing right it is sort of stripping away like the personality and and you mentioned will like sometimes the cutting carries us to the people we don't expect to be cut to for narrative or psychological reasons it's because i think the 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 show is kind of like just blurring everybody together into this there's this just batch of operatives and they don't want to be there and they're not doing anything useful and they're just kind of like the 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 show is kind of turning them all into like just one sort of mass of like brown shapes in a brown space and it's again i think it is very overlit and i think i think i wish it wasn't so overlit but i don't think it's it's not doing anything with being i don't want to compare to something that i know you both haven't seen uh especially because i only saw it for myself for the first time about two weeks ago 
uh, Smiley's People is a much more sort of cinematic piece of television. Like there's more locations, there's more camera movement. I won't say the lighting's better. Like it's still the, the lighting teams are the lighting teams, but it it feels bigger. Like there's more more variety in shot scales. And I honestly don't think it works as well. And I think I think part of why it doesn't work as well is because so much of to me the pleasure of of Tinker Taylor the miniseries is Alec Guinness. There's enough style to sort of pull focus away from him. And actually, I think it's both worth talking about that on its own, but also I, I want to kick out as a a potential thing to to chat about and think about because uh, I I grapple with this a lot. To what degree do we consider acting a formal element? Because this oh. is something that I think is really, mm-hmm. whenever I talk about like film form, that always, that's the big gap to me. It's like, are actors part of form? Why not? <laughs> On my really pedantic days, I, I go, form is content. But I would say it's, it, it depends on your framework of thought, right? Because if we're comparing form to classical elements, like theatrical elements, you might consider form separate from that. But if we're comparing, for example, formalism to literary elements, you might categorize mm. acting under a formal umbrella. So I think it depends on what lens you're looking at it through. And and to me though, there's even, I'd even nuance it more than that. Cause like there's theatrical acting and like, I can imagine Alec Guinness playing George Smiley in a play based on this. And I don't think it would be the same performance. I think a lot mm. of the performance is taking advantage of the cameras 10 inches from my face. It's only looking at my head. I can do tiny things that I could not do on stage. A little corollary to that is Gary Oldman's performance is tailored for the wider shot. Mm-hmm. In the commentary track, again, Alfredson makes a really big point that um, they only, there's only two proper close-ups of George Smiley in the entire movie, both shot on what he claims is the widest lens they use in the whole film, a 50 millimeter, which I think is just utterly untrue. Um, there are definitely some like 35 mil shots in there. Mm. Yeah, that's, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine an entire feature being made with nothing wider than a 50 millimeter. That's ludicrous. Yeah, exactly. there's some wide room shots, but I think what he's getting at is that you only get two shots on a relatively wide lens. I mean, compared to like the 300 millimeters that you're often on in that film of a clean single of Gary Oldman with an eyeline near to the camera. You got the scene where um, Smiley is recalling his meeting with Carla, which actually has a very specific formal difference as well that I want to talk about. And the scene where he first realizes that Control suspected him uh, when he's in Control's apartment. So it's the two times that Smiley is a little unguarded emotionally. Mm -hmm. We get the clean single close-up and never anywhere else. And Oldman's performance is completely tailored to that, right? It's this, mm-hmm. in the close-ups, he's, I mean, I always thought he looked like an iguana. There's these little twitchy movements of his face, but in the wider shots, he's using his entire body to act in a way that Alec Guinness isn't really called upon to do as much in the uh, in the BBC series. Yeah, part of the reason I wanted to to read into the record the idea of, film, of acting as a formal element is because of Oldman's performance, which I think is... I think is one of the truly stellar pieces of screen acting of the 2010s. It is, mm-hmm. it is so unusually reactive. He's really not using his voice. He's not using dialogue as like they're there. Like he, he says words. So he has to figure out how he's going to deliver dialogue. But I think so many actors rely on how am I delivering dialogue as the heart of the performance and everything else springs from there. And he's just not, he's really starting from how am I, occupying this room relative to the person I'm sitting against. And like the way he sits in chairs is the performance. And that's just so strange in contemporary cinema. And I love it. I think it's brilliant. And it makes it so disarming when you have the one time where his 
vocal delivery comes to the fore is you know the the scene where he loses his temper with bill hayden you know the what are you then bill and it makes that moment disturbing even though he he's basically it's the one time in the film he talks in a normal volume because you're not used to him using that toolkit I want to call attention to the lighting and how it actually plays into his performance in that film. I think Sven Nykvist actually credited the, the specific lighting style to Scandinavians because he says it's always snowy there, so you get bounce coming from below. So um, Hoyta van Hoytema often uses this in all of his films, but especially here and Let the Right One In, which is a, the lighting sandwich style, which is essentially two soft lights coming from the back of a character that wrap around the subject's face but do not illuminate the front of the face. It's kind of like the Gordon Willis and the Godfather thing where Gary Oldman is rarely given eye light, but it dehumanizes him and it gives him, you know, it's it's like it's like in Black Narcissus. I forget the name of the actress, but she said the lighting gave her her performance, where in this case, mm-hmm. the lighting is as important to Gary Oldman's performance as his actual acting is. Absolutely. It's, I think, a great combination of actor and lighting and and costuming. Like, it's... This is what cinema is, right? It's not like one thing is like, oh, the acting is good. It's like, no, all the things are good together at the same time. And I think that's why why the film version of Tinker Tailor is so good, because it's doing that for basically 130 straight minutes. Can you imagine this film if if the entire thing was shot with medium close-ups of Gary Oldman on like a 24 millimeter lens, you know, Emmanuel Lubezki style, and like it would mm. be a different film. You'd have a different relationship with the protagonist, even if all the other things yeah. were equal. So it's this, I don't know, it's this wonderful framework uh, with which they yeah. built here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a reason why uh, Gary Oldman won the Academy Award for Best Actor for this film. Oh wait, sorry, he won for Darkest Hour. <laughs> I, I think what you're forgetting is that the scene in The Darkest Hour where he's on the subway is the best scene in cinema history. <laughs> is it not when uh, he mobilizes the English language and sends it into battle? <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I still can't, uh, like, I'll cut this. But I can't get over how much better Oldman's work is in this film than every single other performance of his entire career. Oh. I just, I watched Crisis last night, the stupid fucking opioid epidemic based on, like, it's clearly knocking off traffic. It's so bad, and he's so bad in it. Mm. It's really just miserable. (laughs) Like, I don't even think he's making particularly good choices in, like, The Mank. No. The Mank. I'm going to start calling it The Mank. How did The Mank get 10 Oscar nominations? Jesus. (laughs) Wait, did it? Oh, no. No, Oscar nominations are being announced uh, Monday, I think, but it's it's going to be it will. nominated oh, no. for like eight or nine things. It's, it's going to be It's going to get nominated I for love sound. How, I, I, know. I love how this it's is the year. It's going to get nominated for sound. <laughs> I love how this is the year when it was like, you know, the rules are different. Like with, with, with you know, anything that streams being, uh, being able to get it in, you know, it's anyone's game. It, like crazy stuff could get nominated this year. And it's like, you know, where's the campaign for Songbird, Will? And like best cinematography, (laughs) like the fifth nomination is probably going to go to the Chicago seven. God almighty. (laughs) Editor's note. The Mank has, as of March 15th, 2021, received exactly 10 nominations, including best sound. And the trial of the Chicago seven was, in fact, nominated for best cinematography. Back to the show. But uh, anyway, I I do I do have an eventual road back in here. (laughs) Okay, go ahead, Will. Um, Which is that I think it's really really good to focus on uh, the performances here because they they have a a major impact on each adaptation. I mean, uh, Oldman in the 2011 film is probably the least sympathetic version of Smiley that I've seen. 
and probably also the least empathetic version I've seen as well. In you that haven't he seen shows... Spy Who Came In From The Cold, Will. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Fair monster enough. in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, but certainly out of these Tinker Tailor adaptations, he, he is... Uh, he's also not very empathetic in that he doesn't seem to empathize heavily with other people. His pain seems to be confined mostly to his own life and things that affect him. Self-hatred uh, over the decline fall of the British Empire, that sort of thing? Sure, yeah. And uh, and not being a spy anymore, that sort of thing. But Alec Guinness takes such a, a totally different approach. It's a, it's a hugely different performance that uh, he could have taken one more faithful to the novel, which is very careful to portray Smiley a lot of the time as having a sort of consciously calculated emotional indifference uh, to what's going on with the people around him, which makes total sense with what's going on. I mean, in the scene in the novel where he uh, confronts Toby and forces him to tell him where the meeting house is, the exact address he is in the novel it makes a big point about how he's barely even listening to toby you know like toby is like agitated he's the novel describes him i think as lamenting <laughs> and uh and on the other hand smiley's attention was elsewhere he was looking out the window again he was barely fixed on it and guinness does most of the physical actions that the novel describes within that scene um, but there and elsewhere guinness portrays him as much more actively involved in the emotional lives and actively caring about the emotional lives of the people that he's talking to and the people that he's affecting. I mean, maybe the clearest example of this is the Guinness versus Oldman line readings of when Bill says, I got him out, didn't I? When he's saying that he got, he managed to get Jim miraculously from being just uh, imprisoned in uh, either Hungary or Czechoslovakia, depending which version you're watching, for the rest of his life, right? Like, amazingly, he managed to get him back to the United Kingdom. Smiley responds, yes, that was good of you. When Oldman uh, says that, it is pure politeness, it's pure conversational function, right? It's, yes, that was good of you. And uh, when Guinness plays it, it's a bit more of a complicated reading, but there's absolutely some genuine um, genuine acknowledgement of the emotional and moral process of <laughs> uh, and decision of getting Jim back uh, after he was captured and almost killed. And I think that's really, really important. I mean, if I have one big gripe about the miniseries, it's not so much about its visuals. It's that it is so focused on a uh, depiction of the processes of the investigation of the annals of bureaucracy, uh, as you emphasized, Tim, that it is so emphasized on these things that a lot of subtext, I think, goes by the wayside. And sometimes these are performance choices. Sometimes these are choices in the adaptation of the text. An another good example from the Bill scene is that in the miniseries, he uh, he gives a long speech after George Smiley asks, why? Why did you do this? And he's like laughs and then he gives this lengthy speech. Ian, Richards Ian Richardson's performance in that scene is absolutely marvelous. But textually, him delivering that speech at that time for that character is not, I think, a uh, maximal use of the available text for the scene, partly because in the novel, what happens is that he gets to the room with Smiley. He opens up a floorboard where he's hidden a written copy of that speech. And he, apropos of nothing, 
just reads the full speech uh, to Smiley then and there. Later, Smiley, Smiley thinks like, you know, he was he, I, he, he thinks to himself in the last pages of the book that he never bought the speech. And that's when he brings up the um, the Russian doll uh, image that was the cover of the original novel and is in the intro uh, to the miniseries. But here's the thing is that that idea, this is a long winded way of me getting to this, but that idea of the Russian doll of, you know, the, um, that we hold so many versions within ourselves, um, us spies, <laughs> um, and we hide one layer of ourselves and another layer of ourselves than another. Um, Smiley observes that the only living person who knows that final doll nestle, nested within the rest uh, is now Carla. And so it's about the idea of um, how our true selves can be hidden even to ourselves personally and just how damaging that can be. Guinness, um, while I greatly admire his performance in a lot of ways, uh, his portrayal within that scene of an empathetic tone towards Bill undermines that somewhat. Uh, and it's not that uh, the, the miniseries doesn't have to do what the novel is doing, but it's an example of the miniseries leaving a lot of really interesting subtextual material uh, by the wayside. So that's 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 closer to my objection uh, with the miniseries than its visual schema is that in the process of what it does with uh, those limitations of fairly unstylized, uh, psychologically and emotionally opaque visuals, it winds up leaving too much behind and not doing enough to fill in the gaps to always make it uh, as fulsome an experience as it can be. Yeah, if I if I can just jump on that, um, I think you've you've gotten to certainly the difference between the series and and most of what what Lecrae wrote. His his books, and I think the 2011 film gets at this very much. There's a, a very strong thread of just like I want to say of bitterness. Like they're they're angry books. They they look at the world. They're frustrated by it. They they know that it's wrong. And I think the miniseries is we can say it's guilty of. We can say it just doesn't want to. But I think it certainly does soften that. It's it's a it's an exhausted film. Like it's a film where everything is just kind of like tiring and worn out. But it's not angry or miniseries, I should say, on film. It's not angry about it the way that that certainly the 2011 film, and I think this is the difference between Oldman and, and Guinness's performances. Oldman's performance is just, it's biting. It's it's sort of harsher in a way that, as you say, Guinness is really a more empathetic figure. And I love the performance, but I do think of all of the major screen performances of George Smiley, it is probably the furthest from the run, the one that was written. Um, certainly James Mason in Deadly Affair, who is playing Smiley in all but name, uh, because the the rights to the name Smiley were tied up with the producers for the spy who came in from the cold. He is just out and out a sarcastic bastard. Like there's just no human warmth to that performance at all. And I think it might be the closest any actor has gotten to the character that was written. And I, I think Guinness is not. Although it is, I think, worth pointing out that McCurray was so pleased with the performance that he wrote Smiley's people around Guinness's uh, portrayal of the character. Oh, really? That's interesting. Much like Ian Fleming decided after seeing Connery's performance, James Bond was Scottish all along. Like, he he changed his approach to the <laughs> character to fit the performance better. The Alfredson film uh, seems to kind of offload our conduits for empathy to other characters a lot. I just love how, I mean, this is present in the book and I think less present in the miniseries. In the Alfredson film, Ricky Tarr is clearly want to be James Bond, right? He he sees himself as this dashing spy and, you know, that ends up what 
it becomes his downfall. So he kind of takes that part of the adventurousness identification. And then you have Jim Prito and Peter Gwillem, played by Mark Strong and Benedict Cumberbatch, who are much more vulnerable, especially Mark Strong, who I think it's almost, it almost feels like the miniseries and the film adapt different halves of that character, where the miniseries, mm-hmm. he's a very kind of gruff soldier who's almost, he feels like very working class, or he's coded working class. In the 2011 film, he's almost this slightly more academic type. It's so vulnerable. I mean, especially when we consider the, the, the revenge killing of... Uh, Bill Hayden, which is not shown in the book, it must be said. It is very lightly implied that Jim Prito did it, but you can't be sure. And then in the BBC series, it's this very cold clinical moment um, of just it's, it's cold-blooded revenge. But in the Alfredson film, it's this the two lovers gaze into each other's eyes while the Julio Iglesias version of Lemaire is playing and everyone cries and he shoots him <laughs> and he falls to the ground poetically and it's 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 lovely. It's absolutely lovely. Um, but um, it really feels like our identification, any identification we may have had with Smiley falls on those characters instead. And that's how they've ordered things in that film. Anyways, I, I, I just wanted an opportunity to, to wax poetic about that moment, which is one of my favorite moments in 21st century cinema. <laughs> I, I think that's an extremely, extremely key point. I, I will say, and I agree with you, that's a lovely moment. I do think Jim Prito is, is a character who I wish was better served by both adaptations because he's, mm. I think he's just a richer figure in the book. He's, he's mm-hmm. an identification character for several chapters. And I just, I feel like, like the, ad- the adaptations are just, they're not as good on getting Preto. Although I think that scene that you described is certainly doing something with him, at least cer- certainly more than the miniseries does, where he's really just a functional object. Which is interesting because he takes up so much screen time in the miniseries. He's really, on- he's there a lot, but I feel like the, one of my, the biggest dramatic stumbling blocks of that series is that it doesn't make a lot of it. I do think Ian Bannon is very good in the role. The character's just, he has no in- inner life in the miniseries. Bill Hayden's, I think, an interesting comparison point to that, too, where, again, the, the, the two versions kind of adapt to slightly different parts of him. He's, again, he, he ends the, the series, this, I, I, I compared him to Gollum, just sniveling in the corner, like, latching onto whatever political line of attack will justify his actions. Somewhat then, theatrical, yeah. Yeah, and then in the, in the film, he's, it almost feels like he's putting up the barest front. He's just he's just done with everything. He's 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 a out and out nihilist. His entire speech is boiled down to it was an aesthetic choice, which I think is a very that was a good choice. One of the bolder liberties that Tinker Taylor twenty eleven takes with the source material is that Peter Gwillem is in a homosexual relationship. the The choice to do that when there was already two characters with a past of having a heavily implied homosexual relationship, I think is very important to the way that the film sets itself apart from uh, the original novel and the way that it emphasizes its particular interests in the material and its themes. Lacare was very interested in the idea that uh, spycraft and the practices of intelligence agencies ran completely counter to every stated value and ideology that uh, that Western nations profess to have during the Cold War. What's interesting about that decision is that it allows that to expand to the idea of a uh, of how more broadly our stated morals uh, and ideology, and by our I mean like our whatever given society we might wind up playing our part in, is often in direct conflict with the behavior that it suppresses Mm -hmm. and with the behavior that it 
discourages. And uh, and I mean, besides that, like it's just very nice that they did it so that it's not overwhelmingly a film about straight white dudes <laughs> backstabbing each other. Just white dudes um, backstabbing each other. <laughs> uh, it's also a good way for the film to deal with the fact that it can't afford itself as much specificity mm-hmm. as the miniseries because of its relatively shorter length. And so it'll that allows it to take some broader uh, social swipes. Uh, one note I have is that it does supplant a subplot in the book that is just totally absent from the miniseries. Um, in the book, mm-hmm. um, Gulam has an affair with a much younger student, I believe. I think that the actual, I remember I read an interview with um, Peter Strawn, one of the co-writers uh, of the film, where they basically said that was purely a economy decision, right? They want that plot beat in there because it's important for that character, but they don't have time to have a whole subplot about his affair. So they, what one thing could an audience understand in like five seconds that would be a compromising piece of material? Oh, he's a homosexual in early 70s Britain. There we go. I do think the question of homosexuality in the entire bibliography of Le Carre is is an interesting thing to grapple with, but there's a lot of characters implied or stated to be in same-sex relationships or to have same-sex attractions throughout his throughout his books. And I think there's always the sense of like the government is cynically using people who know how to hide details about their lives mm. by like exploiting that about them while also not permitting them to go about living their lives like the, the government almost creates the state of you 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 seem like someone who's really good at lying to the world so why don't you lie to the world for us and that's it, i think it's just it's a, a kind of a, a meta theme throughout so many of his books without ever being like really punched as a theme in any of them and i do like that the the movie sort of teases that out just a little bit more mm. i still feel like the alfredson film is about something slightly different from Lucari's general thrust, at least in the books I've read and in the miniseries. And that's that it feels like in the, let's just say the miniseries. In the miniseries, it's it's a series about the self-hatred and loathing that results from the decline and fall of the British Empire uh, among its little microcosmic militarized society of British spies. The film really, to me, feels like, at its heart, it's kind of about how awful and soul-sucking it is to be just part of this nihilistic spy profession, mm-hmm. right? How that enables you and requires you to basically abandon all pretense of idealism. And that the decline the fall of the British Empire to the film is a method through which to explore that. I think that's fair. I also actually think that makes the movie somewhat closer to the book, which I think is, is a more psychological piece than the mm-hmm. miniseries is. And like, 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 I forget who said it at the start of the conversation. It's, it's a very dense story. Mm-hmm. And it's dense in all three media, and yeah. and there's just so much to. Pull. I mean, the book itself, I think, is is one of the underrated, like, great British books of the 20th century. Honestly, like at least the post-war. And I, I do think this is this is going to get into way too big of a topic to cover in the time we have. But I just want to sort of nudge in the direction of. I think that the the movie is a really bold, brave adaptation because it is willing to say, okay, we. We can't do all the work with the script. We have got to do some of the work with visuals. We have got to do work with lenses. We have got to do work with with sets, with costumes. And again, I compared it to um to something like the original Diane Keaton starring version of uh, The Little Drummer Girl, which is just dismal. But I think generally adaptations, more so even than most films, I think really are script focused. Like they are they are nervous about requiring style and form to do anything it's like what what work can the script itself do to get at this book 
And I, I think this is a really brave attempt to do something beyond that, beyond just like writing a tight screenplay. Uh, but I also think part of the reason we don't see more of this is because it's hard. And it's hard on the viewer because viewers are not by and large trained to engage with all the elements of a film all at once. And I think it's hard for filmmakers because especially I think contemporary Hollywood filmmakers really do have this kind of medium shot intensified continuity training that doesn't really yield. It doesn't lend itself to this kind of filmmaking. What happened to the various people responsible for this adaptation is so fascinating. I mean, for one, Bridget O'Connor died before this film was released. She's one of the co-writers of the film with her partner, Pierre Strong. And so even that team that resulted in this very singular work that I haven't seen anywhere else, that's probably not going to happen again because half of them is passed on. And Thomas Alfredson, you know, the other, I think, person largely responsible for this. Um, I mean, obviously he went on to great things. I mean, he's done the snowman. Oh. Oh. It's just, how how do you go from Tinker Tailor <laughs> to the snowman? Its weaknesses are so specifically what this film gets right. I just don't understand it. It's such a fascinating film. I mean, I kind of dig the snowman, despite the fact that it's a hunk of garbage fires all in one. I saw that Thomas Alfredson's done one film since then. Uh, it's a Swedish film whose name I will not even deign to try to pronounce. Um, but it looks like it, he's it's just like a kind of a family kids film that has currently a 4.0 out of 10 on the very reliable IMDb. So... I don't know. It, it, it feels you like... You guys are crazy. I like The Snowman because it ends with a guy named Harry Hole winning the day <laughs> by dropping the bad guy into a hole. <laughs> I, I actually stopped, like, the longest time I went without watching Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was directly after watching The Snowman because I was terrified that I would be like, oh, it was all an accident. Um, <laughs> it was... He, he stumbled into this. This is another... The Treasure Planet. I don't know. Like, Tinker Tailor wasn't his only good film, though. Like, he was yeah. good before The Snowman. <laughs> Exactly. I just, what, I mean, I really, if there's any filmmaker I want to make a comeback, there's a few, uh, you know, I want to see Elaine May's next film, if that happens. God, yes. But Thomas Albertson is high on the list of people I'm like, I mean, he made one of the two greatest ever examples of like an adaptation of like an elevated, serialized 20th century fictional literary series about a bunch of old British militarized people in a microcosm and never got a sequel that isn't Peter Weir's Master and Commander. And, you know, for that matter, I, I would like seeing Peter Weir getting one more movie so that we don't have to have the way back be where his career ends. <laughs> Swan but. song. Well, at least yeah. Peter Weir had a, I mean, the guy had a, as good a run as anyone <laughs> could hope for, I think. He had, he had a couple of films in there, for sure. <laughs> You're allowed to peter off. So, so what is The Treasure Planet? I am familiar with- You cannot with be told. Non, you can only be shown. Non-definite article, Treasure Planet. <laughs> it's, um, it's the first ever feature-length animated film to come out of Bulgaria. Okay. It's probably, I think Will and I both agree, it's our favorite piece of outsider art in cinema. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing else like it. It's actually amazing, despite the fact that it's broken in virtually every possible way. The English dub is, is incredible and worthwhile. Um, there's no translation for the Bulgarian version. We're trying to get a friend of ours okay. to do it. Genuinely good movie. Made by people okay. who have never done a film before. It's heartwarming and wonderful. I am on board with that. I I have recently, in in light of the just unspeakably god-awful uh, Tom and Jerry that just happened, <laughs> uh, I've been re-watching the Gene Deitch films that he made with like a skeleton crew of animators in Czechoslovakia in the early 1960s. And I just find them so much more gratifying than like real Tom and Jerry because they are such strange like graphic objects. 
So. I mean, the Tom and Jerry movie, I only watched five minutes of it, but there was a great joke in the first <laughs> was, five minutes. Because, like, Tom's, Tom's, pretending to be, uh, Tom's pretending to be blind and playing the piano, right? Yep. And then Jerry foils it, and Tom, like, goes to the throttle, and it's clear he can see. <sighs> and then someone off screen yells, uh, hey, wait a minute, he's a fraud. He's just a regular cat playing the piano. That is absolutely the best joke in that movie because it's delivered off screen. And something about that feels creative in a way that no other element of the film does. Thanks for coming on, Tim. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. It's always always a pleasure to, to join other podcasts than my own. Our associate producer is Paige Smith. He's right behind me over there. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us, review us on iTunes, on whatever podcast service you use that allows you to do so. You can help keep us going at patreon.com slash filmformally. You can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at filmformally. Next week, we discuss the director's cut that everyone's talking about. You know the one. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the indigenous nations of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Bye!